Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent, and also we have a guest, Ewan Stevenson, who's the finance director of Royal Bank of Scotland. From the US, we're joined by Alistair Gray, our US financial correspondent. This week, we'll be discussing RBS and the outlook for the bank and the UK economy. Also, a look at the new Eurozone rules on provisioning for bad loans. And finally, from the US, Alistair Gray on the US deposit market. First, though, to RBS. Just recently, we had Ewan Stevenson, the finance director of RBS, in the studio here. We talked about a lot of things, from the outlook for the UK economy to the prospects of the UK government selling out of its 71% shareholding in the bank. I started, though, by asking Ewan whether his position at RBS gave him a unique insight into the UK government's planning for the macroeconomy and Brexit. So I'm not sure the 71% ownership gives us particular insight into government thinking, but we are the biggest commercial bank in the country. We look at the world based on what we can see in terms of consensus economic outlook and you know we've had a very consistent view i think since brexit that we're planning on the basis of low growth low inflation low rates even with some of the recent noise around possible interest rate rises my own view is we are looking at a low rate environment for a long period of time coupled with the fact that i do think technology is a sort of deflationary scenario as well on top of that So what does that mean when you sit down with investors? Because as well as being majority government owned, you do have a substantial number of commercial investors as well. When you sit down with those people, what kind of sales pitch can you do to them, given that the macro outlook is pretty challenging? Well, I think even with that macro outlook, banks generally are a product of their own macro economies. So unless the economy is leveraging or deleveraging, the banking sector typically grows in line with nominal GDP. So that's not a surprise to investors. They understand it. When we look at returns in the UK, which is 80% of what we do now, we think we can earn comfortably above cost of capital returns. So even if the growth outlook is lower, we do think from a returns perspective, it remains an attractive place to do banking. What about RBS's own idiosyncratic issues? Probably the one big black cloud hanging over the bank still is the mortgage-backed securities settlement that we're expecting you to strike at some point with the US Department of Justice. From an investor point of view, I guess that is the one thing that may be holding people back. Look, we understand it's a significant issue. We would like to get it resolved. We've been very clear, I think, publicly that we'd like to get this resolved. And you're right, whether you talk to equity investors, rating agencies, fixed-income investors... Even internally with staff, it's a significant overhang on us. And ultimately, I think it is holding back the government's ability to privatise us. 
And what is the timing on that? Because you have been talking, at least informally, to the DOJ for some time. I know you'd love to settle this by the end of the year. That's not entirely in your own hands, clearly. But whether or not you can, do you think financially you can get this behind you? Even if you haven't struck a settlement by the end of December, can you provision what you might expect to be paying by the end of December to get this done and dusted in 2017? Yeah, I mean, to get it done and dusted, we clearly need to get it settled. And I think until we get it settled, it also has consequences for things like stress testing. Because even if we were to provide an incremental amount against an expected settlement, that wouldn't solve the stress characteristics in a stress test, for example. And that's obviously a short-term problem for you, potentially, because there are stress tests from the UK regulated just around the corner. You failed those last year. How confident are you that you can pass this year? Look, we know we're on a path of continuous improvement, so it's sort of speculative how we may do this year. But we're building a business model that we think is comfortably able to pass stress tests once we can get the final legacy issues resolved. The biggest one, as we've just talked about, is RMBS, and hence why Ross and I are very keen to make make progress if we can this year. And just to press you on that, how likely is it that you will be able to do it by the end of the year? Well, I think you used the word we'd love to get it resolved. I think that probably is what Ross and I would love to get done. Okay, and a final question on that. The amount is clearly going to be very important. Deutsche Bank went through some pretty major tribulations ahead of their own settlement, which ended up being far less than the $14 billion figure that was first mooted. You were a bigger player in this market than Deutsche. What does that leave you assuming in terms of where you end up? Well, we've obviously done extensive modelling around this. I think it's very difficult to look actually at prior settlements and draw quantitative conclusions. You can't say just because you had 20% more of the market that you're going to pay 20% more penalty. It's not the ability to do that. We've got existing provisions, but I think we've also been very open that we do expect final settlement costs to be well in excess of our current provision. Okay. In terms of other things that RBS can do for itself, if you like, clearly once that legacy issue is out of the way, that's one of the major headaches gone. Are there advances that you can make, despite the macro environment being difficult, to improve the margins that you make, for example, in current accounts where in Britain it's a no-fee structure that's in place? Do you think we can have any shift towards a fee-based banking system in Britain? So today about one in five of our current accounts pay us fees for sort of value-added services around those accounts. We've got something like the reward account, which gives a rebate on household bills, which has been a very successful launch for us. But I do think there's a large portion of the market who are accustomed to free current accounts. And certainly with the new digital competitors that we're now facing who are pricing current accounts or similar services for zero, and the capital markets are supporting them, I do think it's going to be quite tough to charge current account holders. And therefore, for us, the biggest benefit would be rate rises to provide more of a natural margin for liabilities than we're seeing at the moment. Talking about the liability outlook, there's been quite a lot of focus recently on the extent to which deposits are sticky. So that level of funding that banks such as yourself get, I think you're predominantly funded by deposits. So your loan to deposit ratio is less than 100%. And whether changes in the marketplace, for example, shift to mobile banking, the so-called open banking rules, which are going to force banks to make themselves far more interchangeable as providers of accounts for customers, whether all those things make deposits less sticky and therefore less important and less valid as a regulatory liquidity resource. And to what extent that 
changes the whole dynamic of what people think of as safe banking funding, whether we're going to see a real seismic shift back towards long-term wholesale funding as a far greater importance for banks going forward. We're spending quite a bit of time at the moment role-playing what could happen under open banking. I I think all open banking does when it gets introduced from next year is really accelerate what we were likely to see anyway, given progress in technology. It is, as you say, going to be much easier for people through apps to move deposits from one bank to another, which, depending on the propensity and adoption rates of customers to do that, could have an impact on our liquidity. So we are having to think about what those liquidity impacts could be. We've already started to take steps. We did our first covered bond financing earlier this year for the first time in five or six years. So I think we will seek to diversify our funding sources, but I don't think we're going to get back to the days that we saw 10 years ago of predominantly wholesale financed banking groups. It's striking a new balance, I guess. And a final question for you. It's now nine years on from the height of the financial crisis in 2008 when you were predominantly nationalised by the then government. What outlook do you see for returning wholly to the private sector? What is the time frame? What needs to happen before that can take place? Well, for us, it's obviously up to the government to decide when they want to privatise. All we can do is continue to sort of deliver the plan. I think we feel we're very close now. We talked about RMBS, but once we get that solved, I think a lot of good things can happen very quickly for us. We become profitable. We start paying dividends. I think the whole narrative around us as an institution changes at that point, the rating agencies, debt investors. I think that provides a decent platform at that point for the government to begin to privatise. We think We've adjusted our business model several years ago to focus on the UK. It makes decent returns in the UK. So we're very happy with the hard work we did a few years ago to change strategy, and we just need to get one or two legacy issues resolved. In your previous life, you were a financial institutions banker at Credit Suisse. If you were in a position where you were having to return or move a stake of 71% from one owner to another, this would take a long time, though, wouldn't it? Not necessarily. I mean, I think the capital markets for good equity stories are relatively open. It will take a few years, I think, but it could happen relatively quickly if the government chose to. Well, fingers crossed. Thank you very much, Ewan Stevenson. So, Emma, let me bring you in. We've heard a lot from Ewan. What do you make of what he had to say? I suppose the most interesting thing was his comments around the sell-down of the government's stake. Indeed, Royal Bank of Scotland has worked hard this year to clear some of the major legacy issues that have been plaguing it since the financial crisis. It managed to settle with the FHFA in the US over alleged mis-selling of mortgage-backed securities, and it's also found a resolution for disposing of Williams and Glynn, a project which it ended up abandoning and has worked with the Treasury to find an alternative solution. So it's cleared these two big hurdles, but the last one remaining is a big fine from the Department of Justice, again for mis-selling mortgage-backed securities during the financial crisis. And this really is the last big hurdle that arguably needs to be cleared in order for the government to be able to restart selling down its 71% stake in the bank. The reason being is because investors are arguably reluctant to buy in at this stage when this big unknown fine is looming on the horizon. Martin, you wanted to add something on that. Indeed, just from talking to some of the investment bankers, some of whom I know listen to this show, and investors as well, big investors in RBS, I have picked up that they sense no urgency in government ranks 
to push ahead with selling shares in RBS because the government is weakened by the loss of its outright majority in June's election, but also pretty much distracted by infighting between cabinet ministers and the priority is all about Brexit and anything else is a distraction for the government. And I think the weakness of the government at the moment means that they just don't want to take on any additional headaches. And this would be another headache because the shares are trading far below the in price, which is above £5, but also below the £3.30 price at which the government under George Osborne, the previous chancellor, sold the first tranche of shares a couple of years ago. One thing we didn't touch on with Ewan Stevenson was what his job outlook is. He's been finance director for a few years. Some people are suggesting he could be a candidate to succeed Ross McEwen as chief executive. What are your thoughts, Emma? Yes, Ewan is certainly one person who may be on the shortlist replacing Ross McEwan. If, of course, he goes to Australia, he's been rumoured to be a Commonwealth Bank of Australia candidate for the chief executive role there. There have been rumours recently and he did formally work there and it's understood that he previously threw his hat into the ring to be chief executive at that bank. But Ewan's not the only name on the list and it's probably worth saying that he's most likely person to step into the role on an interim basis should Mr McEwan leave. But other names that have cropped up recently include Alison Rowe, who heads up the commercial division of the bank, so this is certainly one to watch. Indeed. Let's move on to our second story. The European Central Bank has come up with some new proposals for the way in which bad loans are provisioned for by the Eurozone's banks. Martin, they sound quite dramatic, talking about 100% provisioning, but maybe not as dramatic as they sound. Not as dramatic as they sound, but still pretty dramatic, I would say, and certainly very controversial in some parts of Europe, notably Italy. Let's just start with what the ECB has proposed. So last week, they put out a consultation paper that suggested that Eurozone banks should provision new bad loans. So not the stock of existing bad loans, but the flow of new loans the unsecured part of those loans should be covered 100% by provisions. And that in a couple of years beyond that point, they should be covered 100%, even excluding collateral. So that's pretty draconian and would mean that particularly in southern Europe, some countries like Italy, Spain, Portugal, Greece, Cyprus, those banks could have to take extra provisions to cover this particularly as it's emerged since this consultation paper came out that what the ECB is moving towards is an ambition for this to also apply to the existing stock of NPLs. And this has provoked a pretty fierce reaction in some quarters, notably from Pierre Carlo Paduan, the finance minister in Rome, who has raised doubts about the ECB plan, doubts about the method and about the substance of the communication by the SSM, is what he said recently ahead of the meeting of Eurozone finance ministers in Luxembourg this week. So there is a bit of a battle going on about this, but it looks as though the ECB is pretty determined to press ahead. As I say, it's a consultation paper. There will be a consultation that opens, I think, next month on this And it will be interesting to see where the ECB goes on it. But this is part of several levers that the ECB, and particularly the single supervisory mechanism that oversees the banks in the Eurozone, they're pulling on these levers to try and get the banks to address their large non-performing loan problem, which is estimated for the banks ECB regulates at about a trillion euros. And ultimately, the news for the banks, if you like, in those markets would be that they'd have to go and raise fresh capital again. 
potentially. Yeah, and the reason that the Italians are pushing back against this is because they're saying that this is going to penalise banks and also discourage them from lending because they will be hoarding capital, they won't be using capital to go out and make new loans, so that could hit the economic growth of these countries. There's also a bit of a debate going on between France and Germany and Italy. The Italians are saying, well, this was only supposed to be part of a wider set of reforms where the ECB was also supposed to look at derivatives. And I think what the Italians are driving at there is also these large level three positions. These are the assets that banks say cannot be valued. So they don't know how to value these assets because they're not listed, they're not quoted anywhere, there's no market price that they can use for them. And that particularly applies to banks like Deutsche Bank in Germany. So the Italians are saying you're picking on our NPLs in our banks, but you're not addressing this big level three asset build up that the German and French banks in particular have. So they're claiming it's they're being unfairly picked on. So it'd be interesting to see whether there is, you know, as a quid pro quo, something to address the level three assets. Want to watch. Let's move on to our final item of the day. And I spoke earlier to Alistair Gray, our US financial correspondent, about the changing market for deposits in the US. I started off by asking him about the Fed's policy to put QE, quantitative easing, into reverse and how bank deposits could be affected by that. So some of the effects of quantitative easing are pretty well known, like uh, appreciation in stock and bond valuations. But QE also had a big impact on another important corner of the financial system, that's bank deposits. The Fed's bond-buying programme flooded the financial system with newly created money, and since 2009, deposit levels at US banks have soared by two-thirds to record highs. So the Fed's decision to end QE has actually prompted quite a big debate in the industry about the impact. Several executives and economists reckon it will lead to an outflow from the system. So Alistair, why does this matter? What impact could it have? So this comes against the backdrop of very low interest rates and customers have been stuck for years with rock bottom returns on their savings accounts. Typically you only get about 0.06% in the US. That's because banks have been flush with cash and have felt little need to woo customers with better deals. But several chief executives now have told Wall Street analysts they expect QE to intensify competition for funds by taking money out of the banking system. Competition for deposits is already expected to intensify. People will be watching for signs of that in the earnings season, which kicks off later this week, in fact. The Fed's considering a further rate rise this year, and that will encourage banks to offer higher rates. And the rise of online banks has made it easier for consumers to switch. What factors will influence how important this will turn out to be? Um, There are several complicating factors that could dilute the impact of this. Most of them, to be frank with you, are really very technical. Uh, (laughs) uh, We probably don't have time to get into them, but one of them is easy enough to grasp, and that is that the Fed's planning to whittle down its balance sheet only gradually, initially by only $10 billion a month. So no one's anticipating a sudden immediate outflow of deposits. This is a trend that's likely to play out over several years. And Fed officials have sought to reassure markets that the unwinding of QE more widely will be uneventful. Top bankers aren't quite so sure they're on guard for what could be pretty far-reaching consequences. For instance, Jamie Dimon at JP highlighted recently that, you know, we've never had QE, so we've never had the reversal of QE. Great. Thanks very much for that, Alistair. 
That's all for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin, Emma and Alistair and also our special guest Ewan Stevenson from RBS. Thank you also for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon and Amy Keane. Until next week, goodbye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.